Matthew chapter 25. We'll be there here in a little bit as we look at some things. But today, uh, as you know, we talked about getting back into our, our study of the, of the Word of God itself. We've taken a little break here. Right after the first of the year, we had talked about all where we want to go this next year. We talked about the people that God had brought into our church over the last year and a half and, and really continues to bring in people who really have a, a, a good ability to be taught the Word of God. We're looking at this next year or so, really for the next couple of years, of really training people to teach people the Bible one-on-one. We're going to be starting here in the next month a time where I can take uh, those of you who have designated to me that you want to be part of that and begin to uh, show you how to do that. We talked about opening up uh, our counseling ministry that uh, we can begin to work with people and show them what the scriptures say and just a lot of exciting things that, uh, you know, that take time to put together, but uh, that's what God has called us to do. And, uh, you know, this study into the Bible, we started that simply because I wanted to not only teach you but to give all of the people in the years that would come down the line into our church uh, a ready study reference if somebody says, you know what, I really just want to learn the Bible. Where do I start? Well, what we have done is basically taken the Bible. We gave an introduction to the Old Testament, show you how it fits into everything. And then we systematically started coming through every book one week at a time and giving you really what to look for when you study that Bible, or that particular book in your Bible. I think many, many times, and I've dealt with people for, for years and years and years uh, and, and taught them how to study the Bible. I think that one of the things that uh, people talk to me most about when they begin to read the Bible, and reading the Bible is important, but you know what? If you don't know what you need to look for when you're reading it, then it's easy to lose interest in it because you get lost in the, in the volumes of the Scriptures that really um, are in very important, but if you don't know the keys to figuring it out, you know, we can get, you can get bored real quick or get sidetracked or certainly come away with it not getting what you wanted. And I began years ago, when I began to work on one, one-on-one with people in the Bible, I began years ago to show them book by book what to look for. I like to give them an overview of the Bible so that when they come to the Bible, they can step back and say, okay, this is what the Bible is all about in a broad general sense. This is what I need to know before I enter into it. And then book by book, when you start to study the book of Genesis, you know what you've got in the book of Genesis. You have an outline. It's broken down. You're shown the different aspects of how it all comes together. And every book of the Bible, book by book, we've done that uh, through the Old Testament. And, of course, the first 39 books of the Bible, which is commonly called the Old Testament, we learned a number of things. And uh, those things really help you put your Bible together. And we begin to define some things. First of all, we found out that there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Probably one of the most fundamental keys of breaking down and understanding your Bible. We saw the beginning of God's plan. We looked at the Bible as a, as a great picture book. And we looked at the Bible as having a picture of something God wants us to see, which really covers from eternity to eternity. And we broke the Bible down to begin to show you the beginning of God's plan. We saw that in the Bible, there's two landmarks that are given. And those two landmarks are absolutely crucial for you following God through history. Because the Bible is nothing more than what God is doing down through history. History is a very complicated thing. And history, uh, without the Bible, 
history without understanding the relevance of God can be very, very confusing because, my goodness, you've got literally uh, 6,000 years of man's history on this earth, and in those 6,000 years you have just uh, nation after nation, king after king, dynasty after dynasty, the Egyptians, the early, the late, the middle kingdom, you know, the everything, all the... All the all the pharaohs and it, get into European history. Louis the Fourteenth, you know Jack Daniels the Second, and all of these things, you know, as you go through history, and it's it's very confusing unless you understand that history is really basically simple. History is about two landmarks, and when you get those landmarks in your surveying scope, and you never lose sight of them. That's exactly how you can follow God through history. In the Old Testament, the landmark is the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the landmark is the church. And when you understand those two landmarks and you find those landmarks and stay with them, all other history really becomes somewhat irrelevant. I'm not saying that it isn't important, but it's only important to the fact of what God is doing with His two landmarks. You see, Understanding the Bible is understanding what is important to God and understanding what God is doing. Not the CNN. Not in all the different aspects of life that goes on around you. But focusing simply on the things that are important to God. And when you focus on that and understand it, then you'll realize that God has two focus points in the Bible, which are called landmarks. And you're told not to remove those landmarks in the book of Proverbs. One of them is the nation of Israel, and the other one is the church. We began to see how that in the Old Testament, God begins the formulation of the nation of Israel. We even broke it down as we came through. We talked about Genesis to Judges, how God is calling out the nation of Israel and forms them up. We saw how that in Judges, the Second Chronicles, we saw the establishment of the nation of Israel. And then we saw from Second Chronicles to Malachi, the rejection of God's kingdom. And then a time period called the 400 silent years, which the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles, which brings us up to uh, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that when you study the Old Testament, that all the people, all the events, all the stories, all the circumstances, all the different stories that are recorded for you in the Bible always picture something. They're part of the, the, the picture book that God has given you. You'll find that they will deal in an inspirational application. They'll deal with the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. You'll find in an inspirational application, uh, they'll, they'll deal and show us our own strengths and weaknesses. And you'll find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he talks about the things that happened to the people and the stories and the events in the Old Testament were for our examples, our examples, and for our admonition that we might not make the same mistakes. And then, of course, we realize that prophetically. In a prophetic concept, the Old Testament and all of the uh, books hold for us the great prophecies about the second coming and the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an incredible uh, study when you begin to look at it. We learned a new word. Well, many of you learned a new word, the word dispensation. And we talked about how that a dispensation is nothing more than a period of time by which God deals different ways uh, with different people. And we also learned another great truth. And we talked about this last week. You know, the Bible in its most practical form, the Bible in its most practical form, and that's how I like to approach things. If God has given me any ability for my own self, it's to be able to see something complex, but learn how to understand it by seeing it in its simplicity. 
Because I've learned a long time ago that if you want to learn how things work, you've got to see how they work. And for me, it's always been an easy thing to look at something complicated and, and see how to make it simple so I can understand it. Because I'm, you know, kind of a simple kind of guy, and I'm not a very complicated person, and I look at things in their simplicity. So when I look at the Bible, I never, un- I mean, I may understand the great depths of the Bible, but I understand them because first I understood the great simplistic things of the Bible. And that's the key to learning the Bible. Start with what's simple. Like my wife has said many, many times, keep it simple, stupid, which is a, she, you know, is a, is a very, and I'm sure you husbands have heard that too. Uh, and that's the way it needs to be. When it comes to the Bible, keep it simple, stupid. That's really good. You break it down in its most simple form. And, uh, you know, the Bible in its most simplistic, practical form is what we talked about last week. It's about choices. I told you how last week that everything in life that seems complex is not really complex because life is simply, in a very simplistic way, about choices. We make choices in life, and we make those choices, then we trade things for them. Life is a trade-off. Everything in life is a trade-off. When you decide to do something, good or bad, you trade something for it. And we talked all about that. But you know what? In a historical aspiration of the Bible, in a practical sense, that's what the Bible's about. You've got Genesis, and then before Genesis, eternity passed. You have Revelation, and then you have, uh, on the other side of that, eternity future. From Genesis to Revelation, you have uh, something called time. God carved out a little parenthesis in eternity, and that parenthesis runs 7,000 years or so. And that little parenthesis called time is when man is on this earth and God acts out his plan from Genesis to Revelation. Now, in its most simplistic form, here's what you got. The Bible is about a book where God has a plan. And God wants everybody on planet earth to be part of that plan. But God's not going to force you to be part of it. He's not going to come down and put a double hammer arm lock on you and make you get saved. You have your own free will because free volition is something that God has always went with, that He wants men and women to choose to love Him, to choose to serve Him, not forced into that relationship. So we see, really, from Genesis to Revelation, in its most simplistic form, the Bible is about choices. God gives every man Every woman. God gives every aspect of His creation. He gives the devil a choice. Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 14. He gives the angels a choice in Revelation. He gives the cherubs a choice in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10. He gives the seraphims a choice. He gives man before the law a choice and women. He gives man and women during the law a choice. He gives you and me a choice. He gives the church aid a choice. In fact, all down through the history of the Bible, in its most simplistic form, it's God has a plan. He's stopped that plan for a period of time before He picks up that plan and says, Hey, look, to everybody involved, I'm going somewhere and I'm doing something great and I want you all to come with me. And man either says, Yeah, God, let's go, or no thanks, I got a better deal. And of course, life is about choice. The Bible, in its most simplistic form, is simply about man having a choice to accept God or reject God in these little parentheses called time that is right just a flicker from eternity past to eternity future. And in that, God just said, all right, time out in eternity. That's really an an axiomoron. There is no time in eternity. 
time out in eternity and we're going to have a little space here where I'm going to give man a book and tell him about my plan and invite him to come wherever he lives in that dispensation of time. And that's really what the Bible is all about in its most simplistic form. Now we come to the New Testament. And that's where we're at today. Now all this material, if, if you're going to figure out life and especially the time that we're living in, I'll tell you the truth. I have never seen uh, a time in America and really around the world where it is so absolutely upside down with truth and right and wrong. I mean, I have never seen and, and never in all of my years, and I know that the Bible says it's going to get progressively worse, and I understand that, and I'm not, don't understand me, I'm not complaining. I look forward to it because I know that that just gets me closer to the Lord, and I'm ready to punch out of here anytime God is. And I know that all this departure from truth and all this screwed up concepts in the world today, it just goes back to the times that we live in that tell us that, you know, God is right on schedule with His plan. And, uh, but there's never been a time when people on planet Earth do not know God. It's like I said Thursday night. They don't know God. And they certainly don't know what God said. And they certainly don't know what He thinks. We've had over a hundred years now in this country where this country has been without the Word of God. And, and a progression through those hundred years where man now has totally taken a stand, saved man, Religious man has totally taken a stand from the one absolute standard that was truth. And we talked about the Terry Schiavo thing last week, and I told you, and I told you again Thursday night, it doesn't take anybody more than 20 minutes and go to four places in the Bible to understand what's going on. It's a very simple thing. But when you live in a world where the Bible tells us that good is now evil and evil is now good and truth has fallen in the street and every, it's like the book of Judges where there's no king in Israel, no final authority, no place that you can go to get truth. And every man does what's right in his own eyes so everybody makes it up and goes their own way and that's what's wrong with America today. Now when you come to the New Testament you're going to find that uh, when you learn the New Testament, you're getting into a circumstance that is a, an incredible book that finishes out the canon of Scripture. But you're going to find that God builds in the New Testament on what He's already done in the Old Testament. And where the landmark in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel, we see that the New Testament changed to the church, the body of Christ where it was the literal, visible kingdom of heaven given to Israel in the Old Testament, now we see a process by which it, trans, uh, it, it changes and it transitions into the body of Christ. And we are right on schedule with our little chapter in Matthew, and I want you to come to Matthew chapter 21. I gave you this a number of weeks ago, and we also talked about it here Thursday night, either it was last week or uh, not this last Thursday, but a couple of Thursdays ago. I can't remember exactly when. Somebody asked. We've talked about it many, many times. And I told you that uh, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33 uh, through uh, 40, you have a complete picture of your Bible. And God does this a lot. There's a number of places you can go in the Bible that in, a, in, in eight or nine, ten verses, God will give you a capsule overview of everything that's taking place uh, within your Bible. And, and here it is in this parable here uh, in verse 33, and I'm going to read it, and I'll show you exactly where we're at on schedule and show you where we've come from. This parable spans Genesis to Revelation. 
and everything in between. Here another parable. There was a certain householder, that would be God, which planted a vineyard. That would be the nation of Israel with particular reference to Jerusalem when you get into the Bible and study it out in Isaiah, some of those places. And uh, hedged it about, uh, round about, and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and lent it out to a husbandman and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruit of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, uh, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandman saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And the Lord, uh, when the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now we've talked about this before and I've showed you how that this parable here is a great uh, truth on, on the whole Bible. And I showed you how that in verse 33 you have the calling out and the establishment of the nation of Israel really from Genesis up to 1 Samuel. Because it's in 1 Samuel that God goes uh, really ceases the great miracles that he does like he does in Exodus. He turns the ownership and leadership over to a tribe, Levi, and gives husbandmen, the kings of Israel, now charge of that, of that uh, vineyard, the vineyard being Israel. So we saw how that verse 33 brings us from Genesis really up to the book of 1 Samuel. And then in verse 34, we, we find what is commonly called the time of the kings. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. And this is where Israel uh, was to bear fruit. And you'll find the Old Testament prophets making a reference to this many, many times. In fact, the story of the fig tree, when Christ comes out at Bethany there uh, the week before he's crucified, and he sees a fig tree that has no fruit on it, and he curses that fig tree. That is a picture of what we're talking about right here. Israel was to bear fruit under the husbandmen, under the leaders of Israel, David, Solomon, and all those men. That was the establishment of the kingdom, the literal visible kingdom in the vineyard, which is Jerusalem, and they didn't do it. And so then verse 35, it says, uh, verse 44, that they send the servants. That would be the Old Testament prophets. And in 35 and 36, you find them uh, rejecting the prophets, killing them, stoning them, and all these are found in the Old Testament. And again, he sent other prophets. This will be the major and the minor prophets, or other servants, the major and minor prophets, and they go to them likewise. And of course, uh, this is where we find the rejection. And this is where the between verse, uh, 30, uh, uh, verse 36 and verse 37, you have the gap of those 400 silent years. And then, oh yeah, then verse 37, here it comes. But last of all, he sent unto them his son. Now that's right where we're at now in the introduction of our New Testament. We're coming into the New Testament, which is, we've seen the history of the nation of Israel, typified by this parable, God bringing into the place, putting it into the land, giving them the kings, them rejecting that kingdom, rejecting the Word of God, just like the church has done, and then being cast out, 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, Shennacherib, 400 silent years, and now we come to the place where uh, verse 37, but last of all, he sent to them his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to the nation of Israel as the Messiah, saying, uh, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen, the leaders of Israel, saw the son, that be described in the Pharisees, the husbandmen, 
They said among themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him. Leaving no doubt in your mind now that they accidentally killed Jesus because they didn't understand. They knew exactly who he was and he knew exactly why they wanted to kill him. So there's no question about it. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard. You go over to Jerusalem today, you'd go on a little tour, they'd take you down to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built back there around, four, uh, around 350 A.D., somewhere in there, when Constantine's mother went down to Jerusalem, was shuffling through the garage sales, and lo and behold, she finds the original cross of Christ that he was crucified on, bought it for a cheap price. Constantine, the Roman emperor, was so impressed with it that he sent all of his people over and built a church right on that spot because he said, this is where Christ was crucified. Now, the Bible tells you that he's crucified outside the city. You find that in the book of Hebrews, and you find it here. The Bible is very clear to tell you that when they caught him, they cast him out of the vineyard, Jerusalem. He's crucified on Gordon's Calvary, which is called Gordon's Calvary after a British general, General Gordon, who was a Bible-believing Christian in the early 20th century, took the Word of God, a King James 1611 authorized version, and found the exact spot, Gordon's Calvary, the place of the skull, where he was crucified according to the book of Hebrews and the book of Matthew chapter 21. And from that point, it has always bore his name, Gordon's Calvary. The right place, with the right book, with the right guy looking for it. But anyway, but that's right where we're at right now. And uh, then he talks about the fact that they reject him in verse uh, 39. And then it talks about the second coming of Christ in verse 40 when Christ comes back and deals with Israel because of their rejection. Now, there's a couple of things you need to understand about the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament as we go into this. You know, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is varied. There's many different things that set them apart. But I think one of the main things and the things that you have to understand and the difference is, is the difference, the real difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the object of their obedience. In the Old Testament, the object of obedience varies according to what God is doing dispensationally. You'll find it differently from uh, uh, when man is being dealt with before the law under his conscience. You'll find that man doing different things and when he's under the law of Moses. And then you'll find us doing different things when we're under grace. Noah was told to build a boat. Abraham got his righteousness by believing what God said about the stars. And Abel uh, gave the right sacrifice and it was accepted of the Lord. In both cases, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both grace and faith are in operation wherever you go in the Bible. No question about that. But the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the object of their obedience. In the Old Testament, that object of obedience varied. In the New Testament, it's fixed on the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross and His blood atonement, and there are no variations in it. And that's the major difference. When you step back and look at it, something I've learned over the years, because man basically is against God. When you read Romans chapter 1, you, we have done before, you, uh, you begin to understand how much the Gentile mindset, and then when you read Romans chapter 2, that also the Jewish mindset is against the things of God. But in Romans chapter 1, it shows you the mindset of the Gentiles. And we're all Gentiles, unless you're Jewish. We're all Gentiles. And because we're Gentiles, we find our pedigree in Romans chapter 1. And the pedigree of the Gentile mindset is to get rid of God as quick as you can and then set yourself up as God. And of course, when God wrote the Bible, He broke it into a New Testament and an Old Testament. 
And overall, uh, God wrote the Bible not only to be the greatest book for you and me to go to heaven with, and I've told you this before, but God wrote the Bible as the greatest book in the world to go to hell with. If you want a stumbling block in your life that will trip you up and mess you up and, and, and land you flat straight in hell, the Bible is the greatest book in the world to do that with. Because I've told you before, the Bible is the only book ever written that ever came to planet Earth that is different than any other book that the world has ever seen. It's a supernatural book written by a supernatural God, and that book has enough power in it to save the lost souls of every man and woman that ever graced the place of this planet called planet Earth. And this book is set down by God, and this book is the answer that man is looking for. And when man tries to go against it, God has taken the very book that will save you, and it becomes the very stumbling block that will damn you. And you know what? That's the same way it was with Christ. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that Christ came down to be the chief cornerstone for the nation of Israel. In other words, when God built the nation of Israel, that foundation cornerstone was going to be Christ and what He taught. The Bible says they rejected Him. And the Bible says when they rejected the chief cornerstone, that same cornerstone became a rock of offense, a stumbling block that Israel stumbled after. Now that's why God wrote the New Testament. Because when the Jews rejected Christ, he, he took Christ, who was the chief cornerstone, made Him a stumbling block, a rock of offense to the nation of Israel. And Israel cannot get to Christ now because of the fact that they rejected Him. God wrote the New Testament all about Him. And when an Orthodox Jew, a real Orthodox Jew, hears the name of Jesus, he turns his head and spits because of the fact that he has rejected and killed the Son of God. And the New Testament is that stumbling block because of what Christ has, God has done with His Son, Christ. Then you've got the Old Testament, where the New Testament becomes a stumbling block for the nation of Israel. The Old Testament becomes a stumbling block for the religious Gentile, or the Gentile in general. Because the Old Testament, God takes the nation of Israel... And he makes the nation of Israel in the Old Testament a theocratic military kingdom that a Gentile can't get because he thinks he's smarter than God and better than God and he thinks he has taken place the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and of course, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When it comes to God, your best deal is just to get saved. Don't try to outsmart him. Don't try to outwit him. Because I've said it before, say it again. God has a monkey wrench in His toolbox that will fit any nut in this world. And you will not get around the God. His mind is sharper, keener, the most exhilarating mind you've ever seen. And you may think yourself to be something when it comes to figuring out and reasoning out and working out. But let me tell you something. You have met your match in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can try to get around this book all you want, as man does. And God wrote the New Testament for a stumbling block to the Jew. And He wrote the Old Testament for a stumbling block to uh, the nation of Israel. Now, with all that in mind, when you begin to understand the New Testament and how it fits into your Bible, there's a couple of things you need to remember. And we're going to breeze through these because we've talked about it before. First of all, the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom of heaven the establishment of a literal, visible throne in Jerusalem that Christ is going to sit on in the millennium and be crowned King of kings and a Lord of lords. The next thing you need to realize is that all history, all history is built around 
two times in your Bible, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It's so prevalent. Even though the world hates Christ today, and even though 95% of the major religions in the world think that Christ is not coming back and have bought into amillennialism or postmillennialism, which basically says that He's not coming back, even though the whole 95% of the religious world today has, has rejected Christ's return and rejected the Bible and have set their own religious systems up by which they operate, man cannot still not get away from the Word of God and the two most important factors in the Bible is the first coming and the second coming because there isn't an unsaved rocket scientist, there isn't an unsaved atheist, there isn't an unsaved college professor, there isn't an unsaved man or woman, an unsaved religionist who hates God, an agnostic or an atheist that defies God, who every time they look at their calendar they go back in history, has to date history before His birth, first coming, or in the year of our Lord, the second coming. You cannot get around the two times in history that all the Bible and all history are around. The first coming of Christ, which took place already, and the second coming of Christ, which is going to take place. Man can reject the Bible, laugh at God, and still it's 4000 B.C. before Christ. Or it's still 1950 A.D., which means the Latin for in the year of our Lord. In the year of our Lord. What does that mean? It means it's counting down <laughs> from the first coming to the second coming. Master of the obvious. That's the way it is. <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. You listen to a little talk radio, pick up a few things here, and watch the History Channel at Easter time, and you get it down. I learned about the life of Christ last week. I learned about Jesus of Nazareth, the place He was born, John the Baptist, the Holy Grail. I understand now why Indiana Jones was looking for it and found it. I learned so much. I have revised my theology. Anyway, you'll find that the concept of the church, which we're about to study in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in the New Testament as it develops. It's really a mystery of God. In fact, it's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible that doesn't get revealed until Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9, and then he begins to work from there. And yet it's some 13 years after Paul's salvation when all this thing begins to transpire and take place. Now what you begin to see here is that God's unconditional promises to Israel mixing with the mystery of the church and how God works this thing out. The church is never referred to in the Old Testament. It's never referred to directly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because it's a mystery. Now you find it in type and you find it in veiled references that we only know the reference now because we have the complete Bible. But nobody in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was walking around saying, okay, here's the way it's going to work. I just looked it up here in all the other books. And this is, no, no. They are going by the time that they work through as God gives them the light and helps them understand what God is doing. Now, technically speaking, have a little tech talk here. Technically speaking, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the Old Testament. I know, I know, you open up your Bible, it says, here it is, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, I understand that. And from that aspect, when it was written, that's true. But you've got to look at what the Bible says. 
The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the testament does not come into effect until the death of the testator. And so technically speaking, from Hebrews chapter 9 verse 16, and also in Matthew chapter 21 where we're looking at it here, technically speaking, the New Testament doesn't come into effect until the death of Christ. Now that's an incredible thing that you've got to remember. And we're going to look at that a little bit later as we begin to kind of set the stage for, uh, and this week we're just kind of giving you the overview where you can grab it, and next week we're going to come start drilling through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and giving you the outlines. But I'm telling you, now I don't know how you study, but when I buy a book, I do two things. Before I ever read the book, I always read the last chapter because I want to know what the bottom line is. I mean, if I get a book and I read the bottom line and a guy doesn't get killed in the end, I ain't going to read it. If it all works out good, I don't care. I only want to see how it works out if it's bad. And then I read the preface, or sometimes called the introduction. Because you will find more overlay and understanding because what the guy will do is give you his perspective. And that's so important for any book. When I'm reading a book on a biography, and I love biographies, and I've read over the years the great biographies of the great men, leaders, I mean... Uh, great military, spiritual, you know, politicians, whatever. Because I, when I start to do that, the first thing I do is I read the preface. I find out what this guy's perspective is. Then I'll read the last chapter, see if they got that right. And then I'll begin to read the book. But when I read it, I now have this guy's perspective because perspective is important. You've got to have the perspective by which you're coming at something before you get the right perspective, or make your own perspective. And so what I'm doing today is what I did before we started the Old Testament. I'm giving you the perspective. I'm helping you to see how this thing all flows together. And that's why it's so important for you to see that. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find that, uh, and also the book of Acts, they're very important books because we know now that they're still into the Old Testament when, when the when the disciples are sent out in Matthew chapter 10 to preach the kingdom, kingdom of heaven, they're specifically told not to go to the Gentiles. The church is not, in fact, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's certainly not up till, the till his death and the resurrection anyhow. But when he sends those 10 out or those 12 out in chapter 10, he tells them specifically, don't go to the Gentiles. We're not starting a church. We're bringing the kingdom to Israel. Because the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is when God brings that kingdom to the nation of Israel. So we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, it's centered around the first coming. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the early part of the book of Acts, you're going to find that the Jew, and you need to know this, gets three chances to get that kingdom. The first chance he gets is with John the Baptist, who comes preaching the kingdom of heaven and telling Israel to repent. Israel, not the Gentiles. I know you got a group of people out there that think called Baptist Briders who think that the first Baptist church started with John the Baptist, but uh, you know, your bats and your belfries got rabies. It that doesn't work that way. Now you understand it the way it works it out. John the Baptist was coming to Israel, and that is the first chance that they have, the second chance that they, they killed him. Second chance they have is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we know what they did with him. They killed him, crucified him. The last chance they get is in Acts chapter 7 under the preaching of Stephen. And when Stephen preaches at the end of Acts chapter 7, the whole thing changes. And we'll come through this when we get to these books point by point. We don't have time to do it today. 
But you begin to see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the early part of the book of Acts, up to Acts chapter 7, God is in a fluctuating period where He's giving Israel. The mystery of the church is still a mystery. He's not revealed it yet. He doesn't reveal it after Acts chapter 7, once they make their final rejection. And once they make their final rejection, then He brings in the church age. He gets a man saved, Paul. In fact, it's so clear. They reject in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 8, half Jews, half Gentiles get saved. Sumerians. In the next chapter 9, the apostles of the Gentiles get saved. Paul, the first missionary trip start, church at Antioch, and off we go. Anybody could see that. Well, not anybody, but you ought to be able to see that. And what happens is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God sends His Son, just like we saw in Matthew chapter 21. He sends His Son and says, Certainly they will reverence My Son, the chief cornerstone. They reject Him. He turns into a rock of offense. He becomes a stumbling block that Israel stumbles at. And in time, at the second coming of Christ, He turns into the smiting stone of Daniel chapter 2, which smashes the toes of the Antichrist, the ten kingdom of iron and clay. He's the smiting show all the way through it. Go through your Bible. Now, this brings up a dangerous thing in Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews because these are all transitional books. And I want to say this because uh, you need to learn this. And this is all stuff you need to know before you go in. And here's how it works. Matthew to Acts chapter 7 is a transition into the church age. Paul's writings are doctrines to the church after we're in the church age. And Hebrews to Revelation is a transitional book from the church age into the tribulation period. You've got to understand that. There's two rules when it comes to rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, there's a bunch of rules, but I'm going to give you two of them. Two rules. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that we are to rightly divide, to study, to show thyself, approve unto God, a workman which needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you know what? You're either going to rightly divide it or you're going to wrongly divide it. And here's how it works. From Matthew chapter uh, to Acts 7, it's a transition to the church. Paul writes, he writes the doctrine to the church. And then from Hebrews to Revelation, it's a picture of the church transitioning out, moving into the tribulation period. And when you come to the Bible, you've got to remember this. All the Bible is written for you. All the Bible is written for you. Everything in that Bible from Genesis to Revelation is written for you. But it's not all written to you. You've got to determine who he's speaking to. This is how people get into heresy. This is why there are so many heresies in the body of Christ. This is so many, why there are so many religious heresies in the world. And one of the things you've got to remember is you never build a New Testament church doctrine on any book other than Paul's writings. His books constitute for you and for me the church. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's not one of the twelve. He's a 13th apostle. He'll never sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. He is an apostle that is a, a, from the rest who is a Jew. He says himself, a Jew born at a due season who represents the church. It's Peter who stays in Jerusalem with the Jews. It's Paul that preaches the gospel of the grace of God. And it was such a message to him that he calls it his gospel because it was something God gave to him only and then it goes from him. And that's why the bedrock of Bible doctrine. And I'm not saying you can't preach or teach great truth 
for the body of Christ out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Acts, or Hebrew. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, whatever you lift out, and I'm going to show you here some examples in just a second, whatever you lift out and preach, it better line up with something that Paul wrote in the Pauline epistles, which is doctrine for the church. I'm not saying there isn't truth that you can't get, but sometimes the truth that you get is going somewhere else other than directly at you. And this is why that today as we stand here, there are people who believe you've got to be baptized to go to heaven. Why? Because they take it out of Acts. Do they get it out of Paul's writings? Nowhere to be found. Where do they get it? Acts. Where do they get it? Matthew. Where do they get it? Mark. Where do they get it? Uh, Luke. Where do they get it? John. Do they find that in anything Paul wrote to the church? Not on your life. That's why people think, you know what? You can lose your salvation. Where do they get it? Do they get it from anything Paul wrote? Never happened in a million years. Well, where do you get it? Hebrews? Where do you get it? Matthew? Where do you get it? Acts? Where do you get it? Mark? You never get it from anything that Paul wrote. You have to lift it out of context, bring it over, and lay it down as a New Testament teaching where it's not supported in the books given to the New Testament church. That's just how it happens. I'll show you some examples. Now, if you go into your average Christian bookstore today, you'll find that there are hundreds and hundreds of books on the issue of remarriage, divorce, and all the things that go along with it. And uh, you'll find that when you buy those books, that you'll find that 99% of those books will take you to Matthew chapter 19, take you to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they'll build the whole doctrine for divorce, how God deals with it, remarriage or marriage in general or whatever, they'll all go back to those books and they'll lay it out from there. And the truth of the matter is, the writing and the teaching for the New Testament church is not in Matthew chapter 19 on divorce and remarriage, nor is it in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It is in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, he takes the whole chapter and verse by verse lays out at least 35 points on the New Testament doctrine for how to deal with divorce, problems in the marriage, what constitutes marriage, and lays it out point by point. And you know what? There's things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he gives to the church. He didn't give to the Old Testament Jew under the Old Testament. You know what I've heard? There's a couple of places in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul makes a statement like this. To the rest speak I and not the Lord. Or the Lord commanded this and not me. And there's a couple of places in there where, where one place in particular he says, To the rest speak I, not the Lord. And I've heard pastors say and teach that that's where Paul was out of fellowship with God and he was speaking out of turn and he had no business speaking outside of what the Lord was telling him. That is the most, that is the most absolute ludicrous concept that you can get. You know what he's saying? He, when he's saying, the rest speak I, not the Lord, he's saying, hey, I'm giving you revelation through the body of Christ to the church that God didn't give the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 19. Because it isn't the same. It doesn't work the same. It doesn't deal the same. There's difference between the two. I'll show you another one. Come over to Matthew chapter 25. I'll show you another one. Now here's one. You want to lose your salvation? Here's where you go. You can't go to anything that Paul wants. You couldn't find one place where Paul writes anything that would even suggest you can lose it. But if you're just bent on losing it, let me help you this morning. And I've never understood that. I've had people that got so mad and so angry and so upset because they just wanted to believe you could lose it. 
Let me tell you something. If I thought you could really lose it, I wouldn't be bragging about it. Because you know what? The bottom line is, if you can lose it, friend, you're going to lose it. Who do you think you are? Why, the greatest, wisest, holiest men that ever walked the face of this planet. The devil found out their weak spot and got them. And if it's possible for you to lose it, you're going to hold on to it. 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 And then you're going to have a heart attack. And you're going to be laying in bed, holding on in the hospital, holding on, holding on, holding on. I'm going to die in 15 seconds. Oh, oh, no, 20 seconds. 19, 18, I got it. And about that five seconds from death, the devil's going to bring a dirty thought through your mind. You're going to lose it. You know why? I can't keep it. You can't keep it. That's why he came down and I died across. He has to keep it for me. I can't even find... I lose my car keys five times a day. What am I going to do with my salvation? But if you're just bent on losing it, let me help you today. Matthew 25. Now, here's what I mean. Verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went out and forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they were foolish, took their lamps, took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in the vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there made a cry, a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and for you. But go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, raptured the church, and they went were ready with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And everybody teaches that thing as, Now there it is. There's some Christians who lost their oil, type of the Holy Spirit of God. Christ came, they weren't ready, and they got left behind. See, 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 see. I told you, told you, told you, told you, told you. You can lose your salvation not written to the church not written to the church not written to the church concept verse one kingdom of heaven i don't have time to go through and show you the difference between virgins and virgin but there is a big difference one little s on the end of a word makes a whole difference in the bible but this is a different book than reading of the, any other book this has nothing to do with the church when this is written the church wasn't even in effect yet this has to do with a nation of Israel. God is dealing with the Jew. And this parable, the 11th of 12, 12 being 12 tribes, 12 parables, one for each tribe. It has to do with a nation of Israel. Nothing to do with the church. But when you lift it out and forsake the writings of Paul and put it into your life and say, this is church doctrine, then you start teaching you can lose your salvation. I'll show you another one. show you another one. Come over here to chapter, same chapter. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, paragraph mark. For the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling in a far country who called his servants and delivered them unto his goods. And unto one gave five talents, to another two, another one, and every man according to several abilities, and straightway took his journey. And when he had received the five talents, went and traded with the same, and made over five talents, and likewise he had received two, gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and, and hid his Lord's money. And the Lord, and, and after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. <clears throat> and so he had received five talents, came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside and five talents more. And as Lord has said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Be thou faithful over a few things. I will make thee man. You know how the story goes. And it comes on down through here. And he, the two guys, a couple of guys do good, one guy does bad. 
And he comes down here in verse 27 and says, Thou oughtest therefore to put the money into the exchangers and men in my coming that I should have received my own with usury. That's interest. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which hath ten talents. For every one that hath shall be given and he that have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even which he hath. And we use this. How many times have I heard this? We use this as here it is. Now I'm not saying you can't, but you got to be. This is my point. you got to be careful. There are some similarities between this story and the New Testament church. You know why? Because God has given you talents and abilities. And you need to make good investments with them. And if you don't make good investments, when God comes back at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to give an account for being a bad steward. There are some similarities. But if you take this and try to make a doctrine for the church, and you say, well, these are Christians, and one, these Christians, some of them did real good, kind of good, and one of them didn't do nothing. And it comes down in verse 29 and says, See, here's what it says. For under every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even which he hath. Now, so far it fits into the church. Watch. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can't go to the church now. It's talking about something else. That's my point. You've got to be careful. Matthew, Acts, Hebrews are landmines. You've got to watch where you walk. You're only safe 100% of the time knowing church doctrine to the church when you're in the books written by the apostle of the church. I'm not saying that there aren't things in those other books that line up. A lot of it doesn't. And you've got to know where, and the rule of thumb is, you always go back and you always base what you're reading before you make it a doctrine on what the doctrine to the church by the apostle of the church in his writing says. And you've got to understand that this thing lays itself out all the way through. And you're going to find that in the four Gospels, as in the book of Acts, all events, people, stories, and situations in the four Gospels, they picture Israel's spiritual condition. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that there aren't parallels between Israel's condition and our condition, that you can't go back and look at the Old Testament nation of Israel and make the parallels the way we are today. Certainly you can. But it may or may not fit entirely into the church. And you've always got to go with the rule of studying the Bible of what is the context. There's three groups of people addressed in your Bible. The Jew, Gentiles, and the church. And your Bible will be directed directly to one of those three groups. That doesn't mean you can't learn a lot of things from what it's written to the other groups, but you can't take that and apply it to yourself. You have to understand that the Bible is an overall picture of God. God is dealing with people. All things is for our admonition and learning, but not everything is written directly to you. If that was true, you couldn't have a bathroom in your house. If that was true, you could have no pictures on the wall. If it was true, you guys would have to wear your hair a certain way. And It's just everything isn't written to you. It's all written for you, but not all directly to you, and you've got to be able to rightly divide that. Now, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word gospel means good news. And you'll find that the Gospels define for you in 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's books, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 5. And you'll find that the Gospels, they show you Christ's first coming to Israel after the 400 years of silence. 
to fulfill all the prophecies that were foretold, some of them 600 to 1,000 years before the death of the birth of Christ and His death. It shows you one of the two most important times which all history is built around, the first coming and the second coming. It brings you from one landmark, the Old Testament nation of Israel, into the new landmark, the, the, the body of Christ. It transitioned through these books, depending on what Israel does with the three chances that, he, that they get. And you've got to understand when you look at the Bible, you've got to see it in this light. It records Israel's spiritual condition, how they rejected. It. It, like Matthew chapter 21 gives you the inside look of the Jewish king and how the scribes and the Pharisees really saw him. And how that they, how God, after the rejection, He began to turn His attention to the nation of Israel. And slowly, through the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the early part of the book of Acts, you find the transition from the nation of Israel to the body of Christ. You find the, you find the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of God. These four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will set up for you the next 2,000 years of history. And when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody knows about the church. We know about it because we've got the complete Bible 2,000 years after it was all done. Nobody knew about it back then. God hadn't revealed the church yet. God is still dealing with the nation of Israel. And you have to understand that fact. That's why you cannot base, I'll say it again, your Bible teaching and your Bible doctrine for the church out of those books. Some things match up, some things don't. Now, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He is, does it match? It certainly does. It matches up with other things that Paul says. Matthew chapter 25 doesn't. Other places don't. Some of the most screwed up heresy for the 20th century, 21st century church is taught out of the book of Hebrews today because somebody with a Ph.D. and who's got all kinds of scholarly credentials after him simply can't read the book in its title and it says Hebrews, not the church. You get some of the screwiest stuff out of the book of James where anybody can read the first verse, because the first verse usually tells you what you're dealing with, that says, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, not to the church. Now, I'm not saying you can't get teaching out of it. Obviously, you can. But you've got to see who he's talking to. And if you don't, you'll wind up rightly dividing it. If you do, you'll wind up, uh, wind up rightly dividing it. If you don't, you wrongly divide it. You're going to find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a bridge. It's a bridge for his son. It begins to make the transition. When he writes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all written now many years after the fact. They're all, John writes the Gospel of John in 90 A.D. Man, that's uh, many, many years after Christ. Sixty-some years after Christ has died, he writes John. Matthew's written 85 A.D. somewhere in there. They're all written very on past the time. And of course, uh, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we're about to get into next week, are greatly criticized by Christian scholars. We have with them what we call the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem is a unique problem. Because, believe it or not, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't all add up and line up right. You'll read in Matthew one story, and it'll tell you that there was one guy. You'll read in Luke the same story, it'll tell you there was two guys. You'll read in John over there that uh, when Christ comes out of the tomb, that there's two angels in the Lord. Then you'll go over to Matthew, and you'll just read about the angel, and no Lord and no other angel. 
And so it's led the guys to believe over the years that uh, you cannot really trust the Gospels. Synoptic means they ought to read together. And they don't. And here's what they teach us. And this is valuable for you to know because you can go home. The first thing you want to do is rip Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out of your Bible because they're no good anymore. This is what they tell you. They tell you that when the men wrote them, they wrote them so many years later that their minds had fogged. They had forgotten the details. And this is why the Scriptures as we have it are really untrustworthy. You really can't trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written so far removed from the facts that the men that wrote it either did not witness the facts or they were told second and third hand. That's why you have the great variances between the books. The guy that wrote Matthew and said there was only one guy and the guy that wrote the other book that says there were two guys the one guy that wrote the one guy, he obviously didn't have all the information. Therefore, you've got to be careful. And you really can't say, well, this guy wrote two, this guy wrote one, so this is better because there's places in here where he doesn't get it right with the other guy. What you come down with, you know what? You can't trust any of them. Just trust me. I'll tell you what the real Greek and the Hebrew means, you see. I'll lay it out for you so you'll, so you'll, you'll never get to heaven. I'll figure it out for you. Just don't trust your Bible. Trust me. Let me tell you what it means. Because you, it is, there's, there's no, no book on this earth that is intended by man, and you can't trust it. So, you know what? I'll show you what it says. No, no, that's not the way it works. You see, God has a plan. And God has a plan that Gentiles can't get it. They're not going to match up. You know why? Because when he wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he portrayed the Lord Jesus Christ four different ways. When he wrote Matthew, he portrays Christ as the king of the Jews. And when you go into Matthew chapter 1, you find a genealogy line. You know what genealogy line it is? It's a line going back to the kings. When he wrote Mark, he portrayed Christ as a servant of the Jews. You won't find a genealogy in Mark. You know why? Because a servant doesn't have a genealogy. He's a bond slave. When he wrote Luke, he portrayed him. Luke, Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. He wrote the book of Acts. What better man to write about the earthly man Christ than a physician. And when Luke writes, he portrays him as the son of man. And when you find a genealogy in the early part of Luke of Luke's, it doesn't go back through the kingly line. It goes back through Mary, through the human line. And when you find John, John doesn't betray him as the king of the Jews. He doesn't betray him as the servant of God. He doesn't betray him as the son of man. He betrays him as the son of God. So in John chapter 1, his his Genealogy going back goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, nothing made by Him, life, life, man, life, right on down the line. One of them portrays Him as the King, another one the servant, another the Son of Man, the last one the Son of God. There's no synoptic problem. No synoptic problem at all. The problem simply is that you want to reject the Word of God and you don't want to let the Bible be what the Bible is. God wrote it. And when he wrote it, he gave you four accounts of the first coming of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every one of them puts the emphasis on something different about Christ. And you know what? Key word of the Bible is what? <laughs> Key word, watch word of the Bible is what? Consistency! Let's try it again. Key word in the Bible is what? Oh, now I feel better. I know, you're all in mourning this morning because of the Pope and grieving over that. I, I can understand why your mind's transfixed somewhere else. 
Bible's consistent. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give you four accounts of the first coming of Christ. So you know what he did? In the book of Revelation, he gives you four accounts of the second coming of Christ. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it portrays him four different ways. In the book of Revelation, from chapter 6 right on through chapter 19, it portrays him four different ways. That's the Bible. See? And this material is absolutely necessary for us to put together what God is doing. Now, if you want to find out who God is, you've got to find out what He said. I'm just telling you, you will never, this country today, and all the tomfoolery that's going around in Christianity and everything else in this world that has absolutely nothing to do with God is simply because people today do not know God. And when you don't know, if you're going to know God, there's only one way you're going to get to know Him. You have to find out, you're going to, if you want to find out who He is, you've got to find out what He said. And once you find out what He said, if you want to have the victorious Christian life, then you've got to make what, you've got to find out what He thinks about everything in life. And when you find out who God is, you find out what He says, and you find out what He thinks, you know what? Nothing in this life is going to get over you. You're going to understand it. You're going to be an overcomer in that sense. And you're going to, and that's why this material is absolutely necessary for us to put together what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation and learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. When we came through the Old Testament, I showed you how to rightly divide it. Now we're going to build on what we've already seen and already done. The New Testament church now is the landmark. The Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. But there's something different here. And we've got to see this as we close. There's something different here. Man, I got 39 books that give me the whole thing about the nation of Israel. I don't have to speculate and wonder about a thing. I can trace that landmark from Genesis 1 to Genesis 15 to Exodus 1 to Joshua to Judges right on through to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and then beyond. No problem. Now the second landmark, the church. But here's the kicker. After 90 AD, there's no more written about the Bible. How do you trace that landmark? How do you, I mean, the Old Testament's easy. You've got a book that lays it out step by step. Once you get to the end of the New Testament and there are no more books being written, how do you go the next 2,000 years following that landmark? I'll tell you how. God put everything you need in that book right there. And that's why you've got to learn it. Because when you learn it, you'll find out what God's thinking, where He's going and what He's doing and what He thinks about it. And we have everything we need to trace God for the next 2,000 years. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John set the stage, building upon what already has been done, but it sets the stage for where God is going and what God is doing. And I told you, I told you, the most simplistic form of the Bible is it's nothing but choices. When you start the New Testament, you start to see God turn His attention to the church. And now He's given the church a choice. He's given men and women under the New Testament grace period a choice. He gave it to him in the Old Testament. He gave it all down through the Bible. He, I said it before. He gave the devil. He gave the cherubims. He gave everybody. Everybody gets to make the choice. And you know what? You can make the Bible as complicated as you want. You can make it as theological as you want. You can spend the rest of your life going through the Greek and the Hebrew and finding all the nuggets. But you know what? The Bible in its most simplistic form is simply this. God loves you. God died for you. And he's got a plan. And he's going to he's, he's postpone that plan for a short period of time. And he's simply like he's pulled up the bus at the curb of the road and said, Hey, everybody want to go with me? Get on the bus. And you have a choice. That's all life is. And I know we make choices about everything in life, but the ultimate choice is what you're going to do with God in your own life. That's the only choice. That's the only choice there ever is. 
And that choice will determine what good choices or bad choices you make the rest of your life. Somebody said, well, that guy, that gal or that guy has really made some bad choices in life. You know what? All they have is making a lot of bad choices after they made the first bad choice. The first bad choice was not trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. That was the first bad choice people make. And then the choices after that are just all relevant to the, la the chat choice that you made. When a man dies and goes to hell, somebody says, wow, that was a terrible thing. No. You know what? He made a choice. He looked at God, he looked at the Bible, he looked at life, and he said, you know what, I'm going to choose this. And when he chose that, he traded this for this. That's all that it is. Life is choices and life is trade-offs. And when you come down through life and a man gets to the end of his life, he can look back and he can basically look at his life or her life and say, you know what, I'm right where I'm at today with God based on the choices I made and the trade-offs that I put into it. That's all that it is. When an unsaved man dies and goes to hell, it's not because he didn't hear the gospel. It's not because he didn't have an opportunity. The Bible says, He the true light, the light of every man that cometh into the world. It's when he was touched with that light, he made a choice, and that choice, then he traded this for that. There's people in the world that have traded religion for Christ. There's people that have traded money and, and, and riches for Christ. There's people that have traded family and professionalism and, and fame for Christ. And all those things are trade-offs, and they all come down to the ultimate choice. So, what all the Bible is, and it's a lot, and how it lays itself out, and it's an incredible book in its most basic, simplistic, practical form. It's about men and women. In the scope from eternity past, before God picks it up in eternity future, making a little parenthesis called time, and in that parenthesis saying, hey, make a choice. The Holy Spirit of God wants men and women to come to fulfill that plan. All down through the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the household of God. All those dispensations are nothing more than God filling up the different household. That's all it is. Before the law, that's one household. During the law, that's another household. Every one of them, every one of them make up a different household of the family of God that you find in the book of Ephesians. And you find laid out all the way through the Bible. And when it comes down to the final analysis, God is giving man and women the choice, the choice, the chance to choose to be with him. So that's what the New Testament's all going to be all about. Next week, we're going to focus right on to the book of Matthew, and we're going to start through book by book, and you're going to see how this thing really begins to pull together. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now let me just say this.